This is David Wilson, and welcome to episode 51 of On Another Track. Welcome to On Another Track with me, David Wilson, exploring people and places from around the world. A podcast series that takes you where you've never been and probably where you never want to go. On Another Track is speaking with people we can't meet with face to face. We use remote video technology and software to see what they have to say. I do a radio program in the UK as well. People say, just leave the mistakes in because people relate to you. You know, like I'll stumble over my words and oh, I haven't got my false teeth in today and things like that. Usually the spinoff I get from my keynote is my workplace training program where people say, oh my gosh, I loved your keynote. You know, I could see how this could really be relevant and transformative for my team. How do we learn more? That's the voice of Trish Tutton. She's my guest this week on another track. She helps organizations and individuals to learn to use mindfulness to reduce stress. I first had the pleasure of meeting Trish when she was a featured presenter at the weekly Alberta Treasury Branch presentations for entrepreneurs. What struck me about it was her inner calm. And that's the whole point behind her business. Being a mindfulness teacher, she has a number of mantras that she sticks to. The first one being it's about being in the moment. The second is changing our relationship with our thoughts. And thirdly, live your life with intentionality. Intrigued? You will be after listening to this interview with Trish Tutton. Oh, and our final mantra is instead of thinking what if, think about what is. My first question for Trish was how would you describe yourself to somebody who you've just met? Oh, gosh. I mean, as humans, right, we're so multifaceted, right? And and also, I recognize I have a very strong connection to what I do, not only because it's what I do, it's also my passion. So I think probably off the top, I would, you know, share about what I do, which is I'm a speaker and I'm a mindfulness and meditation teacher and and student. <laughs> That's an important piece. You know, I'm so passionate really about sharing these, these absolutely transformative tools that have completely changed my life. The reason that I teach them is because they have transformed and continue to transform the way I navigate life. It's ups and downs, um, have completely shifted everything for me. So that would probably be one of the first things I would share. I am, you know, a Canadian. I grew up in Ontario though, and I moved out West to Alberta about 10 years ago. So I'm a little bit of a transplant from Ontario and that, uh, I love nature and I love to read and I'm really passionate about personal growth um, and just learning, honestly, how to make the best of this life that that we are given. I think one of the key things I always ground myself in is that we don't have any guarantee of how long we get in these bodies and living on this, you know, amazing earth. So I'm really curious about the things that we can do that add not necessarily quantity to our life, but quality. So that's a really big part of who I am too. I love that, you know, not quantity, but quality. And I think you hear that headset a lot actually, but so I want to break things down because you said lots and lots of things there. So let's analyze everything. So, so (laughs) one, number one, you know, you hear mindfulness mentioned a lot, right? And for the uninitiated people who really aren't sort of into that groove, I suppose. Yes. Break down mindfulness. What does that really mean? Yes, 100%. Well, 
the interesting thing is, you know, I work with groups all the time. I do keynote presentations. I do workplace training programs. I teach mindfulness classes to the public. And in this new virtual world we've had in the past couple of years, I've been able to um, integrate things like polls into my virtual presentation. And so often I try to get like a temperature check of where people are. And what I find over and over and over is that the vast majority of people who come to my presentations have heard of mindfulness, whether they've seen it, you know, on a social media post or on the cover of a magazine or their friend has told them, oh, you're really stressed. You should learn how to practice mindfulness. So by and large, many of us have heard of it. We're aware of it. But then to go deeper in our levels of awareness, many people don't actually know what it means, like you're saying, and even less people actually practice it because it is not just a concept. It's something that we have to engage in and practice to get better at. So there's really this buzzword of mindfulness. That's what I call it. Buzzword when everybody knows it, but nobody really knows it or not a lot of people really know it. And I think what most people would say, well, it's, you know, about being present, being in the moment, which absolutely, I mean, because it's a buzzword, there's going to be some truth in that and there's going to be some misconceptions. And like many things, you know, there's much more to it than just that quick kind of off the cuff, be present, be more in the moment. I think the one element that people often miss out on in the buzzword kind of mindfulness um, popularity that's out there right now is that it's really about being present with acceptance. And we can think about, you know, the pandemic because it's so it's so universally experienced right now, or at least we're all experiencing it maybe in different ways. But you know, so many people, I think, and I've even thought this to myself too, is like, you know, when the pandemic is over, oh, I can't wait until it's over and it's just going to, things are going to be so much better. So inherently in that thought is an unacceptance of the way things are right now. I don't like things the way they are right now. So I can't wait until sometime in the future and then I'll be happy. Then I'll be fulfilled. Then I'll be at peace. And what we get is this human hamster wheel of constantly thinking that our happiness is somewhere out there in the future and that it's not possible right now. And in fact, right now is the only place our life ever exists and the only place happiness is ever possible. And so one other example, I also like to think I'm looking out my window right now is the weather. You know, most of us know the opposite of mindfulness as, oh, it's raining. I wish it wasn't raining. So you might be in the present moment, it's raining, but there's no acceptance. There's the, again, the delay of when it stops raining, then I'll be happy. When I have kids, when my kids go away to college, when my kitchen is renovated, when I get that raise. So mindfulness really is about being in the present moment and accepting what's here. Maybe not liking it. You don't have to love the fact that we're in a pandemic, but accepting this as your current situation. And the amazing thing about it is that it's not just a concept. It's not just a buzzword. Be more present and accept what's happening. We are actually given instructions of how to practice it with mindfulness. You know, you said so many great things there. And uh, I, I, I do accept what you're saying is that we, we've kind of got out of touch with mindfulness and being in the present. But yeah, here's my question. Do you think we overthink it a little bit too much because we're being told to be this way or that way? Here's the latest fad here. This, Rather than just cutting ourselves off from all the external influences and just thinking about our breath, thinking about 
the sun of our face. Think about the, you know, the, the, where I'm walking today, you know, taking consciously what's in front of me. Yeah. We've always done that quite naturally as human beings, but what has kind of changed to make it difficult for us to connect with that being in the moment? What is it? Yeah. Well, I think that it's exactly what you said, overthinking. <laughs> and even, you know, listening to the way you um, you said some of those things and people use the same terms you, you use as well when you said thinking about the breath, thinking about the sun on our face, that thinking about the experience is actually totally different than experiencing it. There you are. So when you think about the sun on your face, those thoughts might be like, like, this feels really good. Oh, now it's getting a little too hot. Oh, this reminds me of that vacation we took. Oh, I can't wait to plan another vacation. It's going to fit. That's thinking about the sun on your face. Experiencing the sun on your face is, I, I, it's actually impossible to describe because it's a, it's a wordless experience. Do you know what I mean? Like it's just literally your direct experience. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I think I know where you're going there um, because thinking consciously about things and and then lots of thoughts coming off the mat, what we tend yes. to do in meditation, for instance, which you'll probably have a lot of experience of, of course, and I've done it as well, is that you try to get rid of the thoughts. You try to clear the mind. And so therefore you try to, I always, I think I've said this on my show before. I always experience when I do meditation, trying to get the third eye is I think of it as a kind of a, theater and with the curtains coming mm-hmm. and then it just goes nice and dark and then as any thoughts that come into your mind you say okay accept that let it go away and as you keep doing it keep doing it eventually you get to that point of complete calm and there's no thoughts invading that space at that moment so is that really what we're trying to do in in a kind of a day-to-day basis is trying to get to that not necessarily a meditative state but one where we can clear a mind of all this garbage and all these thoughts that are just shooting all over the place Yeah. You know, I often like to kind of step out of the the realm of saying like clearing our mind or getting rid of thoughts, because I think, you know, I teach this, uh, these concepts by and large to corporate audiences, to not-for-profit, to employees, to people who are like everyday normal people who have a life, who have a family, who do have to think and who actually have, I mean, thoughts are very valuable. This is the other thing we can, when we get into meditation, we can, you know, start to kind of demonize thought like, oh, all these thoughts are bad. We have to get rid of them. We have to shove them to the side. And thoughts are really important. Thoughts are really valuable. You know, it's part of the value humans have that we can think and we know we're thinking and we can have amazing ideas and problem solve and get creative. That's beautiful. The problem becomes when we start to over identify with our thoughts or we just can't rest our minds at all. And this is, you know, what you'll hear about people who say, you know, I can't sleep. My mind's too busy. I just can't sleep. So in fact, I would say, you know, with meditation, I often emphasize to people that it's not about getting rid of thought. It's actually about having a a present moment experience with acceptance. So if I'm sitting to meditate and I have a lot of thoughts, I can just accept, okay, all of those thoughts are here right now. And I'm actually just going to focus on my breath for now. And to use your stage analogy, I use this one a lot. And I say, let your breath take center stage. Your thoughts, you're not actually pushing them away. You're not getting rid of them. You're actually just trying to set a boundary in the moment and say, 
I'm not going to let these thoughts spin me out. So I sit and I focus on my breath. My breath takes center stage. And then I have a thought and it says, you know what would be a lot more productive right now? (laughs) You know, sending that email, emptying the dishwasher, vacuuming the house. I don't need to push that thought away. I can accept that it's there in the present moment. And I can just kind of let it, you know, on a stage where you've got like your main character, there's your breath. And then that thought of I should be doing something more productive right now, that thought just kind of recedes into the background and it becomes, you know, maybe one of the secondary characters and we don't have to push it away. We just are really changing our relationship with it so that that thought doesn't control us. Because if we don't let it recede into the background, if we make that thought at center stage, well, your meditation is going to end there. You're going to stand up and go do the vacuuming. You're going to stand up and go unload the dishwasher. So it's this new relationship with thought. And to put that in a perspective of why does that matter day to day, you know, imagine that you're having a conversation with somebody and all of a sudden this intrusive thought comes in and is distracting you from actually listening to your podcast host, you know, on the day you're doing the interview. And that intrusive thought comes in again, same thing. You don't need to push it away. You just say to yourself right now, this person speaking and asking me the question, they're on center stage. And that thought, I'm just going to, you know, not focus on it as much. I think we use this term let go a lot, which is actually a lot harder than just saying, let it go, you know, but just letting it recede. It's like, it's not actually getting my attention right now. And then whatever it is I'm focusing on, speaking to somebody, writing an email, brainstorming, you know, whatever requires my focus gets my focus. And that's something you can literally train yourself to do in a meditation practice. I love how you rationalize that because that was so useful to say that it's still part of the play or the theater that's happening. It can be secondary. It's a secondary character. And that was lovely because that kind of allows you still to have it in the sphere of influence, but it moves off to the side and it will have its time. You know what I mean? It will be part of the play for today. You know, that's the thing. And in that way, our thoughts don't have to rule us anymore right? They don't get to choose all of our actions. We get to choose. We're empowered. We're the director of the play. <laughs> there you go. I mean, it sums up so well. And I love that because then we're not ignoring the the kind of elephant in the room, so to speak. Right. 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 So, but here's the thing I wanted to ask you. Why as, as human beings, do we fixate on thoughts and why do they drive so much of our day-to-day mm. life? What's that all about? Mm. I mean, to me, I think it's just about how we are socialized in dominant culture, right? Think about, I think about my own educational experience. It all is prioritizing thought, thought as really the value that I can bring. How can I think more? How can I get more ideas? How can I be more critical, more? And again, it's not to, you know, I don't want to make it black and white because the truth is as humans, we like to do that. We like to, we like things in binaries. We like to go, this is good. This is bad. You know, even the pandemic, right? It's so easy to look at this experience we've gone through. I was speaking to someone about this this morning and how, well, it's all bad. Everything has been bad. And certainly there have been some really horrible, you know, experiences people have had and losses and grief. And and there have been some silver linings that have come out of this too. So it's not it's not either or. It's not that thoughts are bad and we just want to have this clear, calm mind. No, it's that we actually 
through the practice of mindfulness meditation, we're becoming more discerning about our thoughts. We're saying, okay, here's a thought. Well, that is actually a really useful thought. I should take action on that because that's going to serve me down the line. And here's another thought, and that's probably not going to be a super helpful thought for me to act on. And I can recognize that while that thought, while all of the thoughts we have as humans are completely real experiences, a thought is a real experience. Not all thoughts are necessarily truthful, right? Factual. And not all thoughts are necessarily helpful for us in our life. So I think we become more discerning about our thoughts. And yeah, I, I, I do believe, I think at least, you know, in North America, we're taught to that thoughts are the be all end all. And that's, you know, and emotions are not really that important. <laughs> We don't need to deal with those. I'm not like as emotional Europeans, our Scots and our French and all that sort of thing, you know, wearing our hearts on our shoulder. But that, that's a really good point you make, though. Culturally, it's really different all around the world. And you, mm-hmm. you must have some experience of that, you know, hosting North American audiences and then maybe going to European culture or an Asian culture or something like that. So have you had some experience of the differences in cultures and how they deal with, you know, thoughts that, you know, dominate their, their everyday life or the way they cope with stress or the way they kind of get rid of, well, not get rid of things as we discussed earlier, but how they kind of utilize some of the, the things that are going on in somebody's mind and saying, you know, that's part of the play, you know, and I, this is how I deal with it. Do cultures deal with it in very different ways, do you find? You know, by and large, I would say my students are, you know, North American. That's really where I've done the most of my speaking and teaching. And so, so that's really what I've seen is just this cultural kind of attachment to thought and uh, not not necessarily being able to kind of separate or needing to train our mind to start to be more discerning about thought. This thought's helpful. This one's not. I can focus on this one. This one I can kind of just let go. Um, but what I will say is that, you know, being interested in yoga and meditation and mindfulness, I've been to India twice. And just anecdotally, you know, I'm not surprised that that was the home of where these things were developed because that country, while it's fantastic and amazing, I often like to say it's kind of an assault on your senses. Totally. Everything is loud. Everything is bright. Everything, there are strong smells and strong flavors. And I mean, it's, it's so busy. There's just so many people, like their, their population density. I'm not really surprised that they, they formulated these ways of training our mind to go inside and to start to find, you know, one of the long-term benefits of a meditation practice is being able to create a calm place within your own experience, especially when your outer experience is maybe chaotic and overwhelming and stressful. How can you still find calmness within yourself? So that would be the one thing I would say. It didn't surprise me. No, but that's a great insight because you can only really deal with what you deal with. But uh, having said that, I mean, India is just one of the countries I would love to go to. I mean, it really would. So let's um, let's do, do a kind of three-step plan, okay? So how would you get somebody started on that kind of journey of, okay, let's let's spring clean. Let's, let's get things moving. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's get the show on the road. What would you say? I mean, the first step before I would, before I would give any teaching, I would just say, start to notice, start to pay attention in your life to the moments where you are caught up in your mind and you're not actually noticing what's happening right now in the moment. You know, 
our culture is dominated by burnout and stress and anxiety. And while there's many causes of these things, one of the main causes I know in my own experience and in my students' experience is this fact that our mind is constantly wandering and spinning stories. It's wandering to the past and it's thinking, oh, why did I say that? Why did that happen that way? I wish things happened differently. Then I'd be happy right now. Or it's wandering into the future and thinking, what if this happens? And what if the worst case scenario surfaces? And what if I lose my job? And what if, what if, what if spins a catastrophe? And I know for myself that so much of you know, stress and anxiety is created just between our ears. And if people are able to notice how often their stress and, anxi- and anxiety and burnout is being caused by all these stories, are, their minds are spinning. If they can just notice how often is that happening and then take a moment to, to look around. So it's like, so you're in your head is the what ifs. What if this happens? What if this happens? What if it, And take a moment to connect instead with what is what actually is. So for me, here I am sitting at my desk and maybe my mind's spinning. What if this happens? What if that happens? And then if I just pause and I notice, oh, wow, I was really caught up in my mind. And then I ask myself, okay, well, what actually is right now? Well, right now I'm safe in my home. I'm warm. It's snowing outside. Luckily, my heater is working. I'm warm. I'm safe. I have a roof over my head. My body's here. I'm, I'm breathing. That's good news. <laughs> That's something great. You know, so the first step I would say is just really noticing how often you are caught up in thoughts of what if, and then be able to take a moment and ask yourself, well, what actually is true? What is, not what if, what actually is. Immediately in that moment, people can connect to this basic well being, the fact that they're alive and they're actually well in this moment and they're healthy and they're, you know, to a degree because they're alive. So yeah, I would say that would, that's really the first step is noticing how often you're caught up. You know, how much does forgiveness um, play in our <laughs> life? Because, you know, a lot of the time we hold on to things because we're hurt, aren't we? You know, we've had a bad or even an experience that just went the wrong way and we can't let go of it. Do you think forgiveness is a big part of moving on? Mm. Yeah. I mean, ugh, forgiveness, acceptance. And I think these are things we can practice in our mindfulness experience too, because immediately, often what happens when I get folks to do this, notice how often your mind is wandering and creating these anxious, stressful states. They notice how often it's happening and it's usually happening more than they think it is. And immediately their reaction, David, is to criticize themselves. Yeah. Ugh. I'm the worst person. Oh my gosh, I'm so bad at this. I'm I'm horrible. Why am I doing this to myself? This is, you know, and they get into this critical state. So even right there is a little opportunity to practice forgiveness. And you know, the actually that I use a, a little um phrase for myself whenever I find myself doing that because as a teacher, you know, there's also the complication of how high expectations I have of myself. I'm here teaching these things, but I'm also just a student practicing but I love using the term, how human of me. Oh, look, my mind was wandering, creating a stressful circumstance that isn't even true. How human of me. Oh, look, I forgot to email that person back or I made a mistake. How human of me, right? Oh, look, I forgot to meditate last week. 
how human of me. And it really is this like softness, this ease, this compassion, this forgiveness we can have for ourselves that really actually is highly motivating. When we criticize ourselves, we're demotivated to do anything. But the more we can just say, okay, you know, I'm human, I'm imperfect, right? The easier we can just get right back to it. Oh, that's so good. I love the way that you kind of summed that up because it feels great. That how human am I? You know, it just speaks to the soul, doesn't it? Which is wonderful. It makes me just drop my shoulders when I say it, right? Like how human of me. Okay. I can let myself off the hook for a moment and I can try next time. You're halfway through listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week is Trish Tutton. She's a speaker and a mindfulness teacher. Next, I wanted to ask Trish a little bit about where she came from and who inspired her on our journey through life? I am third generation Canadian. So, uh, and, and if you go way, way back, I haven't done that. I, I actually was talking to my husband about this the other day we, that we were saying, should we do one of those, you know, ancestry things, the 23 and me to find out? Cause we're both pretty like, again, third generation Canadians and family, you know, from kind of Scotland, England, the UK. Um, and yeah, I grew up in Ontario and I had a, you know, a, a really big passion actually for performing. I had a passion for theater. What ties it into what I do now, I think it was the psychology. I loved studying characters and kind of figuring out like, what are people, mo- what is this character motivated by and what do they want and what are their, what's their history? And how does that history show up in the way that they're being in this moment we find them in this play or whatever? Um, so I was really passionate about performing. And I also grew up as a bit of a, to be honest, kind of angsty teenager, which there's still a part of me that that is that part, you know, that sees the suffering in the world and sees all of the difficulty and sees all the, the injustices and, you know, really gets fired up by that too. And I always think I had a, a desire to not only see myself out of that suffering, but to see, you know, all the injustices in the world, to see that suffering healed. And I think there's kind of a connection there between my love of of psychology, of human behavior, of why we are the way we are, why we do the things we do, um, why we're attracted to the topics we're attracted to, and then the performance piece, and then also just wanting to help people live, I was going to say easier lives, but I don't know, maybe just more fulfilled lives or more, how can we be more skillful in the way we move through the world so that we're not just stuck in all of the the difficulties, right? How can we be wise about how we live to to kind of juice out the most good and the most gratitude and the most joy out of our temporary lives that, that we possibly can. I've got the really in- bizarre question to ask you. When were you sure. first? Well, no, because <laughs> I love it because you're, you're, you're um, the way that you kind of come across is you're very, very great with all the words and the feelings. You're really connected <laughs> with all that. And it kind of, it chives, you know I mean? You can see the connection there. But when were you first conscious of being conscious of other people and their feelings? Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good question. Oh, gosh. I mean, probably as far back as I can remember, which is probably like just being, you know, kind of kindergarten aged and just, yeah, starting to recognize, you know, the people around you and the the difficulties they were going through and, and my own emotions. And um, yeah, 
Yeah, it's a good question. I'm going to keep pondering that. Ponder, yeah. ponder for as long as you because because <laughs> the other thing I always find when I interview people, there's usually some significant event in their life. Say mm. their mum and dad or an uncle or an auntie have motivated them, or you get your personality. Because what did mum and dad do? Just out of interest. Yeah, my dad was a business owner, so I feel you know connected to to him in that way. Now being an entrepreneur, he was a plumber and he had his own business. And my mom worked for him. She um, was kind of the office, you know manager for him. But my mom also, you know, as far back as I can remember, my mom was really passionate about health and wellness. She always, you know, was making some new recipe with whatever the latest, you know, food was. She was going to jazzercise classes and bringing my sister and I along with her. And she, you know, would have exercise videos. She actually kind of claimed she passed away. It'll be 10 years ago oh, sorry this coming that. fall. Thank you. But she, um, she was kind of there for my first, uh, you know, yoga teaching and meditation teaching. And she always took a little bit of credit because she said, you know, the first yoga class you probably ever did is when I put the VHS tape you know, <laughs> in, in the TV and started doing it uh, herself when I was really little. So wow. um, certainly my passion for, for health and wellness, which really expands beyond my mindfulness practices as well into other areas of my life was motivated by her, certainly. Oh, she, she launched the boat as eh? she got you onto that yeah. little rocky ocean yeah. of, so, so uh, again, was that the kind of tragedy that kind of got you motivated in many ways that mum just passed? And because she obviously was very young, eh, when she passed. Yeah, hundred percent. She was 55. Um, and you know, like I said, I was already practicing yoga and mindfulness and teaching as well. She came to some of my first classes. So I was interested in it and intrigued about it, but I think, you know, she, she passed away very suddenly. She went through about a, a year and a half battle with breast cancer and thought we thought she was out on the other side of things. Like she had gone through all of her treatment. She had had reconstructive surgery. She was finally kind of, yeah, feeling like she was on the other side healing. And then all of a sudden started to not feel great and went back into, you know, the doctor for tests and they, they basically just told us, you know, the cancer had spread throughout her body. Um, and so, yeah, it was very quick. It was like a week and a half. Oh, um, I went back to Ontario and yeah, a week and a half. And I think what that, you know, it's interesting in mindfulness teachings, again, as I said, there's so much nuance beyond just being present in the moment with acceptance. One of the main teachings in mindfulness is impermanence. And what impermanence means is just that everything in our world, including us, has a beginning, has a middle and has an end. And that there is nothing that nothing in your world that does not follow this law of impermanence. So now I look back on that experience that, you know, that sudden loss, that was my, that was me touching the truth of impermanence. And all of a sudden it made me, and I'm sure, you know, your listeners, yourself, we've all, you live to a certain age and you've had an experience of loss, whether it was loss of a loved one or of a job or a health crisis or some big shift where things change and you feel like the ground underneath of you has been kind of ripped out, right? Things feel really shaky. And it's, it's the fact that you're seeing the truth of impermanence. And I think what really, and I spoke about this earlier, you know, what really became clear to me was that I have no control over the quantity of my life. 
I think before that I had just assumed we all get 70, 80, 90 years. That's guaranteed, right? And in that moment, that belief was shattered. And so what I realized was that, okay, well, I can't, I, I can't really control the quantity. Certainly there are things we can do to help, you know, our long-term health. But at the end of the day, you could be hit by a bus, you could, you know, all these things. And so it really connected me with the fact that every moment matters. Every moment, if this is going to end, which it will, every moment matters. And so the best way that I can use my moments is to be present for them, right? And enhance the quality of those moments, no matter if I have five days, five years, 50 years left. Oh, you say that so eloquently. I mean, it's a tough place to come from, but you know what I get? And and this is just talking to you, like I say, I haven't spoken to you for 18 months, two years, and then we come on a podcast is you are a doer, aren't you? You're somebody that does. You know, in other words, you, 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 you've got an idea and you think, mm. I, let's put this into practice. And I think that's what you were really mm. summing up in living in the moment, but, but be a doer, do something. Mm. Is, is that mm-hmm. important? Yes. And <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. There's so much nuance, right? It's like, yeah, of course. And I think the, the thing that mindfulness reminds us to do is that sometimes being is is the most important thing as well, right? That's fair Doing not necessarily just accomplishing and racking up, you know, all the places you've been in the world and all the things you've done, and all the accomplishments and all the certificates and all the, it's like, but was I there for it? Was I really there for it? Because I think a lot of us, we want to do a lot of things, but we're in the midst of doing one thing and we're planning the next thing that we want to do. So we're not even really present for the thing that we want, you know, this thing that we dreamt of doing all our lives. We, we get to travel to Hawaii and then we're there. And then we've been looking forward to it so much that we can't even be there and enjoy it because now our mind is somewhere else in the future, planning the next thing. That's interesting, actually. I never thought of it that way because, um, you know, sometimes when people get stuck in their life, you know, they get into that little rut, it's because they're worrying about so many different things, but not doing anything. And that's really kind of the perspective I was coming from, Mm. that, that there is a small way of actually getting the wheels to start to turn by doing something or trying to achieve a very small win for that day, you know, yeah. something that would just not, not significant in any way, but literally that letter that you're going to have to post to somebody because you want to have that conversation. Well, that sounds so sure. old fashioned letter, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> but you know, you know what I mean? The email that you were supposed to sort of say, I haven't spoken to somebody for 18 months and I ignored the last message. Sure. That can be such a significant thing, isn't it? Because that little blockage can really stop you from achieving the other things. Yeah. So kind of that's really why I was going was that, you know, doing, something mm-hmm. is better than doing nothing or am I mm-hmm. wrong still though? I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't think you're wrong. Again, I think there's, there's nuance to it. Right. And, and there is, you know, you know, it's, it's really interesting because in the same time that I've been really curious about mindfulness, I've also been um, kind of initiated into goal setting. And I think it's, you know, some people can think that these are such opposites. It's like, well, you want to be present yeah. in the moment, but also you want to plan. And, and, and then if you're goal setting, well, you're thinking about the future and you're, you know, just your mind is good. But it's an intentionality. Uh, you know, with which we live our lives. And I think, you know, living, I live in Banff National Park. And so I do a lot of hiking on trails. And I think about like, if you're lost in your life, just like if you're lost on a trail, don't keep going. 
Don't just keep wandering aimlessly. That's not a good strategy. If you're lost on a trail, what do you want to do first? Stop. Stop. Just stop. Stop. Pull out a map. Try to figure out where your feet are planted. Because if you can't figure out where your feet are planted, you don't know which way to go. And it's the same thing in life, right? Um, So I think it's a combination of being intentional about our doing and also sometimes stopping and not doing so that we can be intentional about our next steps. Okay, so let's try and roll that all back in because you mentioned earlier on that you're great with, um, you know, you've done work with companies and you do work with individuals and and you're very kind. Like I say, you were a fantastic presenter at the ATB presentations and you gave away so much information that people could really latch on and say, I like Trish, I want to have her in my life because I could see that she could help guide me and what have you. So how do we roll Trish Tutton, all your experiences in life, and then we get them back into the business angle? How do you do that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can even just share kind of quickly how the business was created because I, it was, um, I'm an accidental entrepreneur, I'm going to say. <laughs> I love that. I just kind of had an idea to, you know, I was, I was working in a very traditional office setting at the same time as teaching yoga and mindfulness. And then I started to see my worlds collide because I started to look at my colleagues and see, first of all, again, back to this, you know, awareness of other people. I saw people suffering. I saw people struggling, burnt out, overworked, stressed. I would be ready to leave the office for 4.35 and people would be like, you're leaving? I have so much more work to do. And so I started to think, well, what's different here? And I thought, you know what is really helping me is my mindfulness practice. It's not just helping me personally. It's helping me in my work as well. It's making me more focused. It's making me manage the stresses, the the stressful, unknown things that get thrown at me in a workday. I can handle them better because I have this kind of, I've cultivated this state of calm within myself that you throw a challenge at me, client calls with a problem. I can, I got it. I I can handle it. And so I started to see like, hmm, there's a connection here. And in fact, these people who I'm working with, who might be the least likely people to show up on a yoga mat at a yoga studio, they could still use this information. How would I get that to them? I lived in Banff National Park. I've been here for 10 years. This is a tourist destination. It's a conference destination. I thought, what if I put together, I have a past of performing, being on stage. I love being on stage. I thought, what if I put together some content for conferences? And so I started pitching it. So that's really where the business began. And still to this day, I do conference workshops and keynote presentations. Um, And then literally after my first conference presentation back in 2016, I had someone approach me and say, my staff need this. Can you come in? Can you come into my to my office and teach? And so I created a program for them. I created an eight-week program and I still do eight-week programs to this day where now it's virtual and I you know, come in virtually to the team and I teach them different techniques each week to manage stress, boost resilience, avoid burnout, manage their anxiety, increase their focus, you know, let them focus on their work instead of on those wandering thoughts. So yeah, those are the two main ways I work with folks. And then I do some public workshops that are available on my website. And I do custom programming with organizations as well. You know, I think mental 
health has risen to the top of many people's and many organizations' priority list in the last two years, and rightly so. It's a little sad that it, it took a pandemic to do, but you know, when we are suffering, when we are in pain, that's when we're motivated to take action. And I love working with organizations that see that when they support the well-being of their people, the well-being of their business increases. Oh, you said that so well. All boats rise. The people get better at what they're doing. Your business is going to thrive. So yeah, it's obvious. Probably I love what I do. Yeah, no, I, I can tell that. <laughs> and I love the fact that you're an accidental entrepreneur. They're the best. Yeah. Yeah, like, I don't know how I got here, but this is what's happened. And I'm just going to run I had with a it. skill and I saw a need and I thought, hmm, I could do that. Well, and then the other thing you said, which was really good, and you just summed it up at the end, was the fact that it's the investment in your people and your staff. It's so yes. important because I, I think it was Richard Branson said that yes. the most important person is not the customer, right? Although that's normally where we went years ago, it's your staff. Because because if you staff are right, then the customer experience is going to be right. Yeah. Well, I mean, if your staff can't focus, guess what? They get on a call with a client. They're not really listening. If you're not listening, you can't actually provide uh, like, you know, valuable solutions to their problems. And if you're stressed out and anxious, how do you think your, your employees are going to interact with each other? Right. You're going to have terrible communication, terrible morale. Everybody will feel negative. I mean, it just doesn't foster an environment really for any business, no matter what you do. It's fueled by your people. They are your greatest resource. I've got a really good question off the back of that, because how much of your work is trying to psychologically convince bosses to go down the route of taking their staff on that new journey, that new vista that you're going to create for them. Um, because I imagine it's not just the staff that are worried, but some of the bosses or the, you know, the owners of companies must be very wary of some of this mumbo jumbo stuff that you do. <laughs> How dare you, David? No. Um... <laughs> I know. I know. I just like to throw it in there, like the cat among the pigeons, you know? <laughs> no, you nailed it. And, and I have to say year over year, it gets easier and easier because more and more often the folks I'm talking to, to plan out these programs, the proof is in their own experience. They've practiced mindfulness and they're like, this has really helped me. We need to share this with other people. You know, the brilliant thing is in the last kind of 40, 50 years, there's a, an amazing amount of data and research on these things. But yes, I share that often with my clients. And, you know, it's part of getting buy-in. And, and yes, people are skeptical. I mean, it's it's so easy for us to just discount things that might not be in the realm of, of what we've learned as we've grown up in school or how we've done things in our life previously. And the interesting thing is the more you practice mindfulness, the more open you get to these things. But certainly I lean into a lot of the data, a lot of the research um, to get not only my clients on board, but then for, for them to get their people on board to say, hey, this really works. And I also include that in a lot of my education. I'm constantly referencing different studies and data points. And, and I'm also, you know, often inviting people to not trust me fully. Like, don't just take it from me. Try it. Because the thing is, again, to come back to, it's something that you practice. It's actually a skill you practice. So give it a try. Make it like a science experiment yourself. Say, okay, I'm going to try this for a week and I'm going to see what happens. And if it doesn't work for you, well, doesn't work for you. Move on, you know. Um, but very the best, pragmatic, yeah. Yeah, the best yeah. way to figure out if it works is to just try it. Okay, um, I want you to visualize yourself somewhere 
um, a dreaming about the future because we all have to have dreams. Okay, mm-hmm. if you were looking at your utopian dream of the future for mental health and support in the workplace and and to get people on that kind of next step of the journey. What could that look like in North America? What could we create that could happen in the next five, 10 or 15 years that really make a positive contribution to people's mental health? Yeah. Honestly, I see like meditation breaks being like the new coffee break. Yeah. I mean, science tells us that caffeine boosts productivity. Why else do you think companies have, you know, a lot of companies have free coffee? Hey, it's going to boost the energy of your employees. They're going to be more focused. They're going to have, you know, they're going to be more motivated. Great. We also know this about meditation. Even if it's a one minute meditation, a two, a five minute meditation, that is going to boost their focus, their efficiency, their productivity. It's going to give them more creative ideas. It's going to help them calm their stress. So they're not, you know, constantly in the fight or flight mode. Often after I complete an eight week session with an organization, many organizations will then bring me in weekly just to do little mini meditations every week. We sign on, we get online and we do a quick five, 10, 15 minute break for their folks where they can refocus their mind. They can kind of refresh their mind, get themselves out of that catastrophic what if thinking, get themselves to be more present. I think that's going to take off. I mean, it certainly is. I make my living doing it, but uh, yeah, I think it'll become more and more popular. You know, the best experience I have had in the last two years was that mini five minute meditation online on Zoom. And, (laughs) you know, I turned up to this thing and said, oh, you know, I'll just absorb it and blah, blah, blah. And they said, no, shut your eyes, start breathing, focus on your breath, watch your breath. And, you know, within a couple of minutes of thinking, I'm meditating and this is great. (laughs) I'm loving it. Yeah, you know, I'll do like little mini, mini meditations in the the courses that I teach. And then um, the cool thing again with virtual is you can pop up a poll and you can say, okay, how do you feel after that? Do you feel more calm? Do you feel less calm? Are you maybe not sure? Do you feel the same? And every group I've ever done, I don't think there's one exception. The majority of people click more calm. Great. Love it. Well, listen, is there anything else that, you know, we haven't covered in terms of how you can help people, companies, individuals that, you know, with other types of services, what other things? Because I know you're a Reiki master as well. I was pretty impressed. <laughs> Although a lot of people, again, I won't use the mumbo jumbo word. A lot of people say, well, that's a bit obscure for me. I get yoga and I get meditation, but Reiki, really? So what, where does Reiki kind of kick in, in in your world? Yeah, to be honest, it's not something that I practice regularly um, as a as an offering, it's more just something I do for, for me personally, but there is some cool science coming out on energy healing and on the fact that everything is energy. We know that, you know, this mouse here is just a bunch of particles that are vibrating. They're all moving. So everything is energy and uh, there are magnetic fields that as humans, we can alter. Um, but yeah, Reiki is something that's a bit more of a, a personal practice for myself. But yeah, though, I think the one other thing I would just say is if folks are interested, you know, and if your company is perhaps not interested in the things that I've shared so far, I do every month offer a public, I call it a masterclass and I pick a theme to talk about and we always do a group meditation and, uh, uh, yeah, it's offered online. So that's on my website for people to check out. Oh, that's fantastic. Now, that, the most important thing, if people do want to reach out to Trish Tutton, what's the best way of getting a hold of you? Yeah, just head to my website, trishtutton.com. There's a contact form on there. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn, Trish Tutton and Instagram and Facebook. So any of those platforms. Okay. Uh, there's one final question I ask all my interviewees is that um, if you were 18 again, Hmm. What would you tell yourself? Oof. 
Hmm. I would tell myself, actually, it's a, it's a phrase that I continue to tell myself, but I wish I knew it back then. Um, I would tell myself to just trust in the way things mysteriously unfold in your life. Just trust in it. I love that word mysteriously. That makes it really exciting. Very interesting. Yeah, trust in the mysterious unfolding. Well, that's the thing. And that's the lovely thing about human life is it's mysterious every day. And uh, it's as mysterious as you want to make it or as boring and as bland as you want to make it. But there you go. Um, <laughs> Trish, it's been a real pleasure. I, thank you so much for taking up my offer to come on the show because, you know, for me, this is a really important one. I, I, I wouldn't say I was stalking you for a long time because that sounds bizarre. <laughs> but I was thinking Trish is going to be on my on my interviewee list. You know, she's got to come on because but I wanted to let it kind of mature a little bit, you know, and let you see where your journey was going. Um, but I thought, you know, I'm going to reach out and thank goodness you said, yeah, thank you. I really appreciate <laughs> oh, it. was it. perfect timing, David. I'm so appreciative uh, for you reaching out and happy, happy to share. Okay. Well, listen, have a wonderful, wonderful year. Cause I know you're going to go from strength to strength. I just, I can feel it. And uh, yeah, just keep doing what you're doing. It's such an important task. Mm, thank you. All right. You take care of a great time down in Banff National Park. I'm not bitter. <laughs> you can tell. Okay. <laughs> take care. Thanks. You've been listening to On Another Track with me, David Wilson. My guest this week was Trish Tutton, speaker and mindfulness teacher, bringing the human back into your workplace and your life. Remember, there are more conversations coming up in this series. Just look out for On Another Track with me, David Wilson, on your local podcast platform and subscribe. This has been a BrickCam production for Urban Aspect Incorporated. Keeping us safe on the roads of North America.